you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Deb gave you more context than I was anticipating somebody in the room giving you. Um, so she, she's proof that context does matter. We, we can just, we can turn the story that way. Context does matter. Uh, ben Witherington always says that a text without a context is just a pretext to make the text say what you want it to say. Um, and I found that remarkably true. Open up a kid's Bible and look at the story of Jonah. And except for the Jesus Storybook Bible, the entire story is Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Thank God rescued him from that, right? That's, that is the story of Jonah and the whale. Uh, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible does a, a more expansive version of the Jonah story where it talks about uh, Jonah running from God's calling and uh, ending up having to, to, to jump out or be thrown out of this boat because they're gonna, they're gonna sink and how this big fish is actually the thing that rescues Jonah. The, the fish is, is the grace of God uh, rescuing him from the, deep, the depths of the waters, and, and he sings a psalm of thanksgiving for this fish. But that's not the flannel graph Jonah story I got growing up, right? The, the flannel graph Jonah story is he was in a fish, and he had to get out of the fish, and God got him out of the fish. Th- this is the story. And the Doubting Thomas story for me has always been a text without a context. It's divorced from these bigger events at the end of John's gospel, and it's just this story of a guy who demanded evidence, right? Doubting Thomas wanted to to see his body, uh, then he would believe. This story is, uh, as Deb said, uh, on the same night that Jesus rose. You know, we've been through the weeks, the events of Passion Week. We've had this Uh, great worship at Palm Sunday, this declaration that he is king and things are going to be okay. And over the course of the week, things just spiral, right? Uh, People begin to kind of pull back. It becomes clear that he is not going to be the type of king they wanted, that uh, Jesus would not overthrow the Roman Empire, but in fact would be killed by them. Over and over and over, he tells these stories to his disciples saying, yeah, it looks nothing like you think it does. Um, Looks nothing like uh, us overthrowing. Instead, it looks like us like giving ourselves up. Um, real love is going to look like me dying uh, and you following after me. And gradually the crowds pull away. We get to the events of the upper room, the, the things we uh, traditionally tell on Monday, Thursday, and he meets with the disciples and he washes their feet and he talks about this new commandment for love. He institutes the Lord's Supper. And, and in this moment, he says, and to be honest, um, to be honest, one of you is going to betray me and another one of you is going to deny me. And the events unfold that uh, Judas does go and betray him. He hands him over with a kiss for 20 pieces of silver, uh, experiences this deep guilt, and and kind of the trial moments begin to unfold. We get uh, to Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and Jesus before the high priest, and Jesus before Pilate, uh, and ultimately he is, is, he's determined that he's going to be crucified. uh, Every opportunity uh, Pilate gives we want Jesus dead. And the disciples keep pulling farther and farther away. This is not what we had hoped. This is not what we had planned. 
Uh, two Pharisees and the women come together and bury Jesus, knowing that the, the hour is at hand for the Sabbath and they can't do anything. And so they, they get him buried in this tomb that Joseph of Arimathea has bought. Uh, we have the quiet of Holy Saturday of, of the Jewish Sabbath in the middle of Passover. And then we, we come to our text that we read last week where Mary comes to the tomb and finds it empty, where she runs and gets Peter and the beloved disciple, and they come back and see it's empty, and they leave brokenhearted. I love the sound of kids and kids' worship. Half the time it's mine. I love it deeply. When my son did like a marvel jump off the chancel earlier, I just love kids and worship, so uh, I can get right back to my story, Velma. I can roll right like that. Uh, Jesus is resurrected, right? Uh, and people still don't get it. Mary uh, is hanging around. There's this empty tomb. She encounters the gardener. And then we find out that the gardener is actually Jesus. And he says, Mary, it's me. And, and she remembers and she believes. And, and he sends her, go and tell the disciples. And so she goes and tells them. And they believe. Or don't believe. Or, or something, right? Something happens. And then literally, the next, the next words in the text are, Later that evening, I was so impressed that Deb did that because I was just, I, in my mind, this story is like way out there at a whole different thing, right? Like this is Thomas's later on thing, but the text is on that same day. They went to the upper room and locked the doors. Mary has already been to them and Mary has said, Jesus is alive. And their response is to run in fear of the religious authorities. They go to that same upper room, probably. We, we, we have different accounts of, of what's going on, but they go up there and they lock the doors out of fear. And somehow, fully embodied, resurrected Jesus gets through the locked door, shows up in the middle of their room, and they are astonished. Twice he offers them peace. He offers them joy. And, and a callback to the creation narratives, he says he breathes the Holy Spirit out upon them. They saw him, and they believed. Right? They saw him, and they believed. But one of the disciples was not there. Thomas, the one that's also called Didymus. So I find this fascinating. First of all, before we even get to Thomas' story, these other ten are up in the upper room hanging out, afraid of the religious leaders, and Thomas is out doing something. Oh, I want to have holy imagination and... and and believe that he's already, who knows, maybe he's the designated bread go-getter, or maybe he is the, like, uh, like, hey, if they're going to kill us, they're going to kill us. We might as well go about it. Who knows why he's not there? But he's not hiding in this moment. He's out. He's gone. And talk about bad timing to be on the bread run, right? Like, all of your friends meet literally the risen Christ, the Messiah of Israel's hope, in flesh with drippy, oozy wounds, and you're not there. Man, I've been in bad timings in my life, but none of them hold a candle to missing the resurrected Jesus when your buddies are hanging out upstairs scared, right? He says, well, I'm glad you saw. I'm glad you believed. But until I can get the same exact thing you had, until I can see the same wounds you saw. See, he doesn't use these words, but this is exactly what he's saying. Y'all saw, you saw these wounds, you saw his, his bleeding body. You saw him. I want the same thing before I believe this, because this doesn't make sense. Thomas was not doubting that Jesus had died. He was doubting that he had been risen. 
been risen. That's a poor conjugation of those verbs, isn't it, Betty? That he is risen, that he had been raised, depending on what subject and, and all that. I know how to speak. I'm just struggling with that for a minute. Been risen. He's doubting this because it doesn't make sense, right? We, we have two other stories of dead people rising, and they go on to die. Why wouldn't he want to see the wounds and to touch his body? Why wouldn't he want the exact same things the other disciples got? He didn't say, like, no, I want this additional benefit above and beyond what they want. He literally is just asking for the same thing. And so they get together, something like eight days later. It's in the text. Somewhere around eight days later. They get together again. They're back in the upper room, and the door is locked again. And somehow Jesus shows up in the locked room. Thomas, you said you needed to see. You said you needed to touch. Here I am. See. Touch. And so Thomas does, and he declares maybe the, the most powerful post-resurrection declaration, and Deb had it, and so I had to, mm, when she said it. Because he declares, it is you, it is, it is my Lord and my God. The very things that he'd been accused in front of the Sanhedrin and in front of the high priest and in front of uh, Pilate of, of claiming that, that he was the king and that he was God, uh, Thomas has on his lips now that he has seen, now that he's experienced the resurrected Christ, it is my Lord and my God. And she says, blessed are y'all, joy-filled, but really blessed are the ones who are going to end up believing without seeing. And we're, I think we often tell the story like, this is a shameful moment for Thomas, right? Like, shame on you, you wanted to see my body, um, bad, bad, faithful disciple. The other one saw it. Jesus doesn't come up and say, you, like, speak to him in a vision, hey, you wanted to see it, but you can't see me. Jesus shows up in the middle of Thomas's disbelief. My friends, if there is no other sermon, Jesus will show up in the midst of your disbelief, too. I just need to tell you that right here and right now. But the, the scriptures, they aren't full of stories who are like, oh, you told me these theoretical propositions about Jesus, and now I believe, are they? There is no philosophical treatise in there of like, let me give you the seven prompts to believe that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God. Let me uh, convince you through argumentation. Paul does a little bit of this, but we'll get down to that later. Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. For the rest of the resurrection, the reason people believe is because Jesus shows up. We don't automatically get things spiraling into, well, Jesus isn't here. He has to show back up to the disciples. They're back fishing in the Sea of Galilee, trying to make a living, and he shows back up on the beach. And do you know they don't recognize him at the beginning? He's out there hollering, telling them how to catch fish. And finally they're like, oh, that is Jesus. Peter's naked as a jaybird, gets on some, uh, it, it says it in the text. I read it this morning in Maryland. It, it's okay to laugh at it. I never noticed this before. It says he was naked in the boat, and he threw on a cloak and jumped in the water and went after Jesus. They are struggling to figure out what you do with a post-resurrection Jesus world. And he comes back to them again. Feed the sheep. Love the sheep. Care for them. And we don't get any more stories of people coming to believe until after Pentecost. That the Gospels tell us that people encounter the resurrected Christ and they believe. 
And then Acts tells us that with the Spirit working in and through those early Jesus followers, people begin to believe. The Spirit of Christ, present in the people who have experienced Christ, becomes compelling. It becomes the ability to see and to touch Christ when people see you and you and you. When, when the Spirit of Christ is upon the people of the church, the people who know Christ, they become Christ bearers. One of the church's great greetings is, the Spirit of Christ in me greets the Spirit of Christ in you. We don't have access to the resurrected body of Christ in corporal human form but we have access to the real presence of Christ at the table and in your heart. And so the world now gets a chance to see Christ, not like Thomas did, but no less significant. Jesus sends them out. And I love that Thomas has maybe the most uh, clearly held tradition of immediately going, and, and the tradition holds that he goes to the Indian subcontinent and and founds the church there, and eventually will go into martyrdom for the sake of Christ. And, and, and it wasn't this shameful thing. It was the story of someone who encountered Christ and went and told others about it. Who was filled with the Spirit and went and said, let me tell you. The church spread like gangbusters for the first 200 years. Takes over the known earth they have no evangelism strategy. They, know have, they have no church blueprint for multiplication and growth. They haven't paid any consultants $96,000 a year to come in and tell them how to craft a vision statement. They show up at dinner tables, and people are like, wow. I'd be like, you. What is going on with you? I, something is different, and, and I want whatever it is you have. Hey, can you tell me what's going on in your life? Can you tell me? And this is the sum total of the first 200 years of how the church grows. It isn't through bullhorns and megaphones. It's at tables and in conversations. It's people going, I don't even get it. Belief is going to take me a while to figure out, but I want to be part of it. I think the early church had it right. Once the church becomes the state religion of the world and is part of the empire, it becomes a whole different strategy for how you become a Christian. You become a Christian because you don't want to die. You become a Christian because the Christians have come in and sacked your uh, area where you live, and it's either become a Christian or die. Maybe we can reclaim some of that early church spirit that says the way people become Christians is seeing the spirit of Christ in you and in you. I don't have a whole lot of um, intestinal fortitude for like uh, evangelizing those people we don't know, but I've got a lot of intestinal fortitude for, hey, come to our house and have dinner. Just get to know us with no agenda except to love people well. So often uh, the church has loved people as a tool uh, for evangelism, and when it doesn't work, uh, we've kind of pulled our love back. I've loved some of the Andover stories because they're the total opposite of that. They're early church, spirit-filled, Christ-encountered stories where you have loved each other well, where you have 
shown up and someone said, let's go to lunch. Or someone in your life said, let's come to that event. Bring your kids, they'll love it. How can we help you? I know you're struggling. Uh, How can I be part of your life? We paint a bad picture of Thomas when we put him on a flannel graph. Maybe he's our, our forebearer. Even when we have doubts and struggles and fears, maybe uh, we can go to Christ and say, help us. Show up. Show up for me. Show up for that friend. Show up for my kid. Show up for that person out there who I'm uh, grieved for. Show up. It's the very same day as the resurrection. We live in that same spirit today. We live in that same uh, energy of hope and expectation that something is happening. They clearly didn't get it, and I have a strong suspicion there are going to be times when we don't get what God is doing next. Uh, We are back to a much more organic uh, version of church than we were uh, for the last 1,400 years or so. And for sure, we're we're at a different point of uh, being the church than we were two and a half years ago, right? People are going to find us because of uh, the presence of Christ in you. Um, and then they're going to find God through that. The Holy Spirit is going to work in powerful ways, and we simply have to, um, to allow it and then to bear witness to it. May we be the ones who declare, my Lord, my God. And then may we go, and may they tell stories about us. Stories about how we were changed and transformed and that we were faithful with what we were called to do. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, it would be easier uh, if you showed up um, and walked in the room, if you came and told us the stories and showed us the wounds, um, and yet... We can come to this table and meet you to encounter the body and the blood of Christ, to be filled with God's grace and with your spirit, to be to be fed, to believe. Lord. Uh, Would you work uh, in and through us despite disbelief, despite fears, despite a world that says this is all a gimmick? Lord, we want to see and we want to feel you. We want to experience you and we want to declare you're our God, you're our Lord. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.